Amen. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, the little racks underneath the seats. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would absolutely adore for you to take that one home. The reason for that is because we value God's Word here. Um, it's the authority that everything we're going to talk about here this morning, especially this time now, is based on. Um, it's the tool that God uses to shape us individually and as a body called the church. It's the primary means by which God makes us, himself known to us as his people and as his creation. And so if you want to know God and we want you to know God, the Bible is a, about a dynamite as, as ever a place to start. And so take that one home and start reading it if you don't have one. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Um, so uh, we are in, back in our Ephesians series and we lit this all back up last week. Uh, we took a break for Advent and first of the year stuff, but now we're back and uh, it's Ephesians time again. Woo hoo. All right. And so uh, if you weren't, <laughs> John's in. All right. So uh, if you weren't, if you haven't been here for the length of our series, we started this all the way back in July. And we've been looking at Paul's letter to uh, that we call a Ephesians, uh, but it's a letter to a church in the first century city of Ephesus. Ephesus, back in Paul's day, was a big old deal. It was uh, one of the fourth or fifth biggest cities in the world at the time. Uh, it was a major metropolitan hub on the coast of what's now Turkey. Uh, there's nothing but ruins today, but if you were to go visit Ephesus, you could go uh, visit, pay your little tourist money, and visit the ruins of Ephesus today. You hop on a plane to Turkey and you have a good time. Um, Back in Paul's day, though, it was a major hub for all kinds of things, economics and culture and religion. The Temple of Artemis was there. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, if you're familiar with that list. And so it's a big old deal. In fact, hey, we got a, a picture of an artist rendering what that might look like. Um, I'm told it's actually bigger. That's like a scale model. Um, but... Uh, Maybe if you go to Turkey today, you can see something like that. Uh, but uh, there's nothing but ruins today. It's just a big square on the ground with some rocks tipped over. All right? And so uh, you can go have a good time, but only if you really like tipped over rocks. Um, put me in the category. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the, the Temple of Artemis was a massive, massive deal. And so a major push for the Apostle Paul was differentiating between uh, the, the religiosity encircling the city, and there was a lot of that, and what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus Christ. Right? And so um, a big push is, is uh, Paul speaking to what he calls the saints. And for the, the, for the Apostle Paul, the word saints is it's not a venerated class of people within the Catholic Church. It's not a special group of people that have done special things and now been voted and canonized. It's all followers of Jesus. The word saint literally means someone who has been declared holy. And in the Bible, you're declared holy by trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross to pay the debt for your sin, and, and God justifies you, declares you righteous before him because of the righteousness of Jesus. That's what a saint is. And so when Paul uses that word, he's not talking about a special class of people. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about normal, everyday followers of Jesus. And so a major push for Paul is to show the difference between what it means to be a religious person in the city of Ephesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the city of Ephesus, because those things are worlds apart, right? Artemis and the true God are nothing like each other. Right? Artemis is, was capricious and she could be bought and bent to your will if you brought the right offering. God's plan is eternal before, before the, from the foundation of the world is the way that Paul phrases that in, verse one, in chapter 1. All right? The true God is nothing at all like Artemis. And so Paul wants the saints in Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus, to, to be informed by and shaped by true views of God as he actually is, who he actually is and what he has actually done. And so he spends the lion's share of the first half of the letter walking through, God has done this, and God has done this, and God has done this. All right? And so uh, Paul writes a letter to followers of Jesus in Ephesus, and it's full of some incredibly practical stuff. 
His heart for them is to walk in faithfulness. But not, but not faithfulness that's not rooted in anything specific. It's rooted in the actual character and work of our God. So you all ready to jump into Ephesians 5.1? Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, so we looked at this text last week and we said then that to uh, be an imitator of God is to love like Jesus loves. And that's a big ask, right? That's a, that's a monumental task, uh, m- mostly because my definition of the word love and Jesus' definition of the word, word love are just absolute universes apart, all right? They are miles and miles from each other. When I, when I use the word love, especially in the culture that we live in, I, I use the word love often to mean something that satisfies me or pleases me, that, that makes much of me, all right? And, and, if, and if that thing stops, well, then I'll move on to loving something else. But Jesus, no, he uses the word love to serve. That Jesus lays down his life for his bride no small task to love like Jesus loves. He humbles himself. He dies to himself and instead serves. But our boy Paul is too good to leave us there, right? Like, didn't you leave here last week going, who can pull this off? <laughs> right? I know I did. Super fun. Love like Jesus loves. Bye. <laughs> like, don't you wish we had some smaller footholds in this? Some practical steps of what it means to Walk like Jesus walked and loved like Jesus loved. Think Paul's good enough to give us that? You think there was a reason we stopped in verse 2 last week? Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3, Paul is going to, for the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, give us some feet to what it means to love like Jesus loves. Verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among who? So in Paul's day, the culture surrounding him was absolutely just flooded with sexual, and, sexual sin and greed. All right? Some of you may be thinking, if Paul only knew what we had to deal with today. No. Actually, Paul's world is remarkably similar to ours. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, has to write a letter to the leaders of that church to tell them to stop celebrating a young man who had a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Like, they think it's something to celebrate because it's a picture of grace, and he's like, no, that sin called him to repentance, and if he doesn't repent, kick him out. Newsflash, we haven't had to deal with that one here. (laughs) Whew! (laughs) Right? I'm okay with not having to deal with that one. We also don't have to deal with the church down the road from us having a full stock of temple prostitutes ready to help anyone act out their worship experience. I'm okay not having to deal with that one too. So how about we not play the who's got it worse game? Because we probably wouldn't win. And Paul certainly doesn't have time, right? It's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to stand in a Christian church and point out all the improprieties and sin outside of this place, right? In fact, I would argue that the world we live in doesn't make it too difficult, right? Doesn't it seem easier in every day to to point out the stuff out there? 
But when Paul talks about sexual sin here, Paul's not talking about a specific type of sexual sin. The Greek word he uses is the word porneia. If you're wondering, yeah, it's where we get our word pornography from. It's a junk drawer term. It literally means anything outside of God's design, sexually. It's used for all kinds of things in the ancient world, especially in, in the Bible. That, that word porneia is just a junk drawer term for all kinds of things out of line with God's design for sexuality. And so when Paul talks about sexual immorality, he's not, he's not targeting one specific type of sexual immorality. When Paul talks about impurity, he's not talking about one specific type of one specific type of impurity. The word is akatharsia, if you really wanted to know. It means unclean. When Paul's talking about covetousness, he's not pointing at greedy hearts out there. Paul's pointing at greedy hearts in here. Right? It is low-hanging fruit to point out that our culture is rampant with overt sexuality and greed. In fact, I would argue it's kind of lazy. It's too easy. But it takes a much braver man like Paul to look the church in the eye and say, I'm seeing some things here. Right? And so in verse 3, he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. He says, These things are inconsistent with someone who has been declared holy. With someone who has been declared holy. To take what God has declared to be holy and then to do things with it that rob it of that holiness is bad stewardship to say the least. Right? A better definition may be outright, blatantly rejecting the Almighty God. So what do any of these things have to do with love? Right? Isn't that what we're supposed to be defining today? I mean, Paul was supposed to give us lenses to see and, and, and steps to walk in, in, in loving like Jesus loves. That's what we're supposed to be fleshing out this morning. What in the world do sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness have to do with love? Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So Paul extends this list now to talk about foolish talk and crude joking. So apparently Paul just doesn't want us to have fun. Is that wrong? Is that not the way to interpret that? So what in the world do these things have to do with love? You ready? They are diametrically opposed to one another. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, crude talk are the exact opposites of loving like Jesus loves. Think about it. The kind of talk that Paul is talking about here in, in verse 4, all right? Whether it's serious or simply joking, the kind of speech that Paul is talking about here, at a core level, what's it doing? seeking to serve itself, isn't it? Whether you're the one with influence or you're seeking to gain influence in that moment, what you're doing in that moment, when, when those words come out of your mouth, you're, you're trying to draw attention to yourself and elevate yourself in that moment. 
Sometimes it's openly degrading of someone else. Sexual immorality, all types of sexual immorality. Not one type, all types of sexual immorality at a core level are seeking to chase after what's pleasing and satisfying to me rather than what's good for the beloved. Right? Greed, by definition. (laughs) Covetousness, by definition, are seeking to undermine other people so that I may advance, right? So last week we, we said that a character level trait of loving like Jesus loves is emptying yourself, humbling yourself, and exalting another, right? And if all those actions and heart attitudes are the opposite of loving, what are we then to do? What's the opposite of serving yourself? Paul gives us an actual word. What does he say? In verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be. And no JB, that does not mean the holiday. It's the heart stance, the heart posture of thanksgiving. Genuine thanksgiving is intrinsically others focused. You ever think of that? Think about that? Whether we're talking about it being towards God or being towards others, genuine thanksgiving is intrinsically others-focused. You're not looking at yourself in that moment, are you? Now, is it possible to be thankful and show thankfulness on a surface level that only ever serves yourself? Absolutely. I think we've all been in the room when that happens. It's, it's weird. Like, you don't want anything to do with it, right? But a heart attitude of genuine thankfulness is intrinsically others-focused. And so the opposite of serving ourselves is actually practice thanksgiving. Look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, uh, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, because we live in a world that so overvalues sexuality and attaining, Paul says that this world's going to do a lot to try to convince you how wrong you are. Because we live in a world that puts these things to be on the highest pedestal, to be the end-all, be-all of our existence. If you get this, then you're finally happy kind of stuff. Paul says that the world we live in is going to actually throw just about everything it can at you to convince you otherwise. So don't be shocked when that happens, he says. Don't be deceived by this. But why do you think the world would try to convince you otherwise? I don't think it's because the culture just wants you on its team. I mean, the more thought I've given to this, I think it's because the culture believes that your worldview is actually an enemy of its own. I think this is why the culture wars that we have over sexual issues are so contentious right now. It's two conflicting worldviews with zero common ground throwing barbs at each other. The idea of serving ourselves with sexuality versus the idea of serving others. 
A worldview that believes that it defines itself versus a worldview that believes it has been defined. Those two aren't speaking the same language, are they? And Paul says, hey, don't be taken in by those arguments. No matter how persuasive they might be. Well, why not? Because you know how the story ends. Like, you know what the end result is, right? You know where that plane lands. Paul lists two end results, one passive, one active. In verse, verse 3, he says, um, sorry, in verse 4, excuse me, actually verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So Paul lists a first one, and he says that those who chase after these things do not inherit God's kingdom. That they miss out on getting to be with Jesus. He who is perfectly good for all eternity. We just throw our cards on the table. That may be the most tragic thing I've ever heard. Did you miss out on that? But that's the passive one. Paul also mentions an active one in verse 6. What was it? Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the what? Paul also says that for these things, the wrath of God is coming. The active punishment of God on sin, the Bible calls that place hell, is coming for those who hold up these things to be the end-all, be-all of existence. Follower of Jesus, Paul warns us to keep our wits about us and to not be deceived, despite how much that cultural pressure may ramp up. Yeah, I know it's hard. But I also know what the wrath of God holds. Pick your own adventure and see how that plays out. It won't end well for the second category. Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be taken in by these things. Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay, so Paul says some stuff here. Let me try to sum it up, right? This ain't a game. Like, you think this is a game? This ain't a game. We're talking about a real life and death issue here. Oh, by the way, on an eternal scale. So Paul says, hey, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you've been declared a child of the light. Quit walking back into things that are the opposite of the light. Quit identifying with and walking back into former ways of darkness as if this stuff doesn't matter. It matters. This is not a drill soldier. Paul says, don't be partners with those who are in darkness. So what does that mean? Does it mean that we should never, as Christians, go into the dark places and be friends with people who don't know what we know yet? No. That's how people in those places learn about Jesus, right? In fact, Jesus told us to do exactly that, take dark into the light place. I don't think Paul's trying to undo the command of Jesus right here, do you? Probably not a wise move. So what's Paul saying? Kind of. Paul says don't be partners with them. This is about influence. We can press the metaphor a little further. It, to, take dark, to take light excuse me, into a dark place, what happens? It brightens up the place, right? 
The, the darkness doesn't swallow up the light. The light affects the darkness, right? This is about influence. This is about your inner circle, right? I used to tell my teenagers on a regular basis when I was a youth pastor that there should be a noticeable difference between those who are your friends and those who are close enough to you to actually affect the way you see the world. Right? To affect the way you see things, to affect what you value, there should be a difference between those you're friends with and those who can change you. I'm not talking to a room full of teenagers. I probably don't have to say that out loud, do I? You all know that, right? Of course you do. Paul says, don't be partners with them. Because you're chasing after different things. And if two people are running in the opposite direction, it won't be long before that doesn't end well. Don't be partners with them, he says. Verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Verse 13, but, if, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is law, light. Excuse me. Paul says that we are not only to avoid, avoid that situation, but to actually call it what it is. To expose it as what it is, darkness. As sin leading to God's destruction. Paul commands us to speak honestly about what these things are and what the end result is. We talked about this before. We need to talk about it again because it's up in the text. This does not give us an excuse to be jerks for Jesus. Some of us like being jerks for Jesus. It pops up in me every once in a while. We talked about this a couple of months ago when we were in chapter 4. We'll talk about it again today. Um, The command to speak honestly and call a strike a strike is coupled with the command back in chapter 4 to be patient, gentle, and humble that Paul commanded us to. And it's directly attached to what we're talking about this morning to walk in love as Jesus loved. To be others-focused, to be self-sacrificial, to lay down your rights, your privileges, what advances you for the cause of another, right? Hello? That's good. Let me know if it's important. I'll... No, Paul says, Paul says, speak the truth. The command to be humble and patient and gracious, the command to love like Jesus loves, we cannot separate this from the practical steps of loving like Jesus loves that we're talking about right now, which means speaking the truth is never about advancing you. Think through that for a second. Speaking the truth is never about what you get out of the deal. If you're the guy that likes pointing out everyone else's junk, you're not walking faithfully right now. That includes my own heart sometimes. Calling darkness what it is serves the explicit purpose of loving the one you're speaking to. So what does this look like in a practical way? It means when the world tries to sell us something or celebrate something that can't really satisfy like it's promising. Or when someone you love dearly is walking down a path that will ultimately lead to their harm. You look them in the eye and you say, no. That will not take you where you think it will take you. No. That thing is actually displeasing to the God who loves you and created you for far more joy than what that thing could ever give you. Looks like tears in our eyes as we tell them the truth. 
But I need to be really careful here because I don't want to give you a romanticized picture of how this all plays out. Because the reality of the world that we live in is that those who are walking dark, in darkness don't really like the light all that much. Sometimes these conversations will occur over things that the world doesn't think too much about. In that moment, they'll write you off as a bumbling fool. They'll probably ignore you, dismiss you away. Sometimes this conversation will happen over the things that the world puts on the highest pedestal it's got. And when that happens, they'll think you set the world on fire. Ask any pastor ever what happens when you begin to mess with someone's idol. What begins to happen when you begin to use the gospel to chip away the thing that they love more than God? They lash out. They lash out hard. Those of you who know the Lord of the Rings well know who the character Gollum is. right? What Tolkien's doing in that moment is giving us a picture of idolatry. If you've never seen the movie or read the books, you're a loser. That's what's happening in that moment. The, the things that, that that ring leads that character to do, the way he acts, the way he treats people. Tolkien has given us a picture of what idolatry does to us. That's what he's doing in that moment. And, and the way you see other characters kind of react in the same way when, when the ring influences them, that, that's idolatry. That's what Tolkien, he's making a theological concept in that moment and through the story. I don't want to give you a romanticized idea, a false impression that this is easy. In fact, it could very well be the hardest thing you'll ever have to do. But to love like Jesus loves never means taking the easy way out. It means dying to ourselves, dying to our own agendas, and serving the beloved. told you last week that the love of Jesus is gritty. Loving like Jesus is just as gritty. Look at verse 14 again. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Our goal here is not that we would stand as morally righteous in the midst of a decaying culture. To be slightly more moral than your neighbor when you stand before God is not a win. Like, I hope you can find people in your life that you're more moral than. Like, I hope you can point to one or two people that you're, you're doing it a little bit better than. If not, everybody's pointing at you. <laughs> to be found slightly less sinful than your neighbor when you stand before a holy God is not a win. You still lose. Because you're not going to be compared to your neighbor. Being less sinful than your neighbor merits you absolutely nothing when your life and actions are held up against an infinitely good, infinitely holy God. And this is the moment this morning that we have to remind ourselves that we are operating in the context of therefore. You remember? We've been saying for a while now that that we need to file away 
the realities of what God has done and who he is and why that matters before we start talking about all the do's that Paul calls us to. And so if all we have is the command to do right here, if all we have is the command to, to, to be loving like Jesus is loving, to speak truth in flawless perfection without ever erring into sin ourselves, if all we have is the command to do, I'm in a load of trouble because I don't have what it takes. How about you? We've been saying all along the commands for the follower of Jesus are nothing more than the fleshing out of who we've already been joyfully declared by God to be. I cannot earn moral righteousness to stand before him. I was a failure before I even entered the gate, let alone left it. My only hope for righteousness comes from a righteousness that's been freely given to me. So the call on my life to call others is most surely not a declaration of how to get on God's good side. It's a fulfillment of a great commission to call others to submit to King Jesus in the midst of a world that so easily bows its knees before temporary kings. We point them to a better way. A way that wrapped us up and called us its own. Our goal in all of this is that we walk in obedience and then through that obedience, Paul says that Christ's glory shines on us. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And as we walk in obedience, Christ's glory is seen by others, and it's seen as beautiful. The call on your life to walk in holiness is not about you. You ever thought through that? The commands that God has on your life? It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. He is showing off his goodness through our life of obedience. That's the point of all this. And as we walk as we've been called to walk, God is seen for who he is and other people go, hey, you know what, that ain't so bad. I think I want me some of that. He is showing off his goodness through our life of obedience. He's both too smart and too good to leave that one solely in our laps, and so he helps us get there. He's already declared you to be holy, now he's calling you to start walking in a way that actually puts that on display. So get your tail in the game, let's go. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? For the follower of Jesus, we press in, right? We press into the God who loves you and is calling you to yourself and pulling you to himself. We press in by hearing the call for deeper obedience and take the next step. And listen, maybe your step is different than the person beside you. Okay. Take the next one then. This isn't a race. And it's certainly not a competition. not comparing you to anybody else. You take the next step. Maybe some of us in here today need to repent of of how we failed to love well. Maybe we've used truth like a hammer. I don't know. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That'll be a time for you to respond however God's calling you to. We'll have a couple of people up front to talk and pray with you if that's helpful for you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. 
We hope that you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. My hope for you this morning is that you would walk away from here today knowing far more deeply the God whose love is earth-shaking and looks nothing like what you've ever imagined before. He changes you. He changes everything around you. He makes you to look like him. We'd love to introduce you to him this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some folks up here to talk if you want somebody to talk to. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for beginning to give us an understanding of what the practical love of Jesus looks like. It's still beyond us, but we're getting a better picture. God, I want to look like you. And I know I'll never get all the way there, but I know you're still working on me. Would you continue to draw me to yourself and make me look like yourself? God, we want so desperately for people to walk into this place or walk into our homes or places of business or just our circle of friends and get an unmistakable picture about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. So God, would you use your people this morning to show yourself off? In your name we pray. Amen.